Unfortunately, last week, I was not able to get a recording of our class session. So what I'm going to do this week is basically in class redo most of what we did last week, but not all of it. And what I will do is add the portions that were left out from this live presentation. So interspersed in this study will be additions that I will make to this week's live presentation. Last week we had a great time, great discussion, a lot of excellent comments, lots of fun, but unfortunately because it was not recorded, you will not be able to hear that. But in this session, I'll essentially go over virtually everything that we will we covered last week apart from the discussion. Sorry about that. And Lord, this morning we desire to worship you and to understand your nature and who you are. We know that people are afraid of this aspect of what you've revealed about yourself. People tend to shy away from your wrath is a frightening thing, but you also encourage us to fear you we desire that we have a healthy biblical understanding of what that means and a biblical understanding of who look at your wrath that that would in fact not only humble us but give us all that you are. It is a good thing. We commit our time. We desire to not be distracted by thoughts, or study, or sin that may hinder us. We confess that as we think about what may stop us from being illumined by your spirit. We desire to submit to our force this morning. This morning we're going to look again at the wrath of God. That is a topic that a lot of people shy away from. Churches don't preach it anymore, don't talk about it. But an area that I think is not only important because there's an abundance of scriptures, hundreds of scriptures that tell us about God's wrath. And I believe that if you don't have a clear understanding of God's holiness, of God's wrath, of God's judgment, then you'll never really truly have a biblical perspective on God's grace and God's love and God's compassion and God's mercy. So God is not only loving and gracious and good, but God also expresses wrath. So we want to take a look at that. Mainly because in our study of the book of Romans, the very first topic, the very first thing that Paul introduces us in the main portion of the book is this idea of his wrath. So he starts off this major section, the bulk of the book of Romans that runs all the way through chapter 8 with a little phrase, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So this obviously is an important topic in understanding everything else that Paul is going to present to us, and particularly this early portion of the book of Romans. So since it's a neglected area and a doctrine that a lot of people shy away from, I thought it was good that we would spend some time looking at it. Before we get into our study of the wrath of God... Let me remind you of the context of Romans 1.18, because this is the reason we're doing the study. In Romans 1.18 is the very first verse of the 
largest portion of the book of Romans, division number two, that's after an introduction, where Paul explains the provision of God's righteousness. It runs from verse 18 all the way to the end of chapter 8. One of the major subdivisions is the condemnation of all humanity. That's chapter 1, 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. Paul is going to argue like a lawyer in court. He's going to demonstrate the guilt of humanity. That's chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. Chapter 2 through the middle of chapter 3, he's going to demonstrate the guilt of the Jews. And then his great conclusion is the guilt of all of humanity. That's chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Now, I'm going to be using this chart, and it's good to review that. We looked at it last time, verse 18. The opening statement that Paul is going to make, he's going to show that mankind is under the wrath of God. That's verse 18. And then in verses 19 through 23, he's going to explain the reasons for this wrath. And going back to verse 18, he's going to explain that this wrath is in the present tense. Now, in our study, we'll look at other aspects, but in verse 18, it's in the present tense. So there's a present tense sense of an outpouring of God's wrath that we can see visibly at any point in history. We can see it today. So verses 24 through 32, that portion of chapter 1 explains to us how God renders that wrath in a present tense sense. In other words, how it is expressed every day and is visible right before our eyes. So that's kind of a broad picture of this passage in chapter 1. But again, it begins with verse 18. So verses 18 and 19 actually go together, and I title 18 and 19, The Revelation and Reason for God's Wrath. And then verse 18 focuses in on the revelation aspect of God's wrath. So let's take a look at the wrath of God. This is the main clause, as we've said before. For the wrath of God is revealed to heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And I've mentioned several times that you break down your study of the scriptures sentence by sentence. And then you break down each sentence. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's the main clause. Everything else is going to tell you something about that main clause. It's just going to add more data, if you will. Then the subject of the sentence, the wrath, basically, of God, specifically. So that's kind of the main thrust of this whole sentence. So we'll break it down further, but I want to focus just on this idea of the wrath of God this morning. There are several words that are used for wrath or anger in relationship to God in in the Bible. There's at least eight that I could find in the Old Testament alone. A few of them occur very frequently, and it almost appears that the majority of them are in reference to God himself. For example, the one that is used most often in the Old Testament, in fact, occurs 277 times, is the Hebrew word af which oftentimes is translated wrath or anger. An example of that word is found in Jeremiah 23, verse 20, 
where it says, The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and carried out the purposes of his heart. In the last days you will clearly understand it. So there the anger of the Lord is mentioned. It's the word off. Also the word chama. You have to pronounce it deep. It's a guttural. Chama sometimes is translated to be heated up, to burn with fury, or just sometimes just wrath or, or anger. That word is used Along with this other word as well, in Deuteronomy 29.28, the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger. That's the first Hebrew word, af. And then it says, and in fury. That's chema. So both words occur in Deuteronomy 29.28. And then the verse goes on, and there's actually a third word. And in great wrath and cast them into another land as it is this day. So that one is not on the slide, but we have another word that occurs 34 times. The second one there occurs 125 times, and many of them are in reference to God. There's uh, another Hebrew word, a third one I have on the slide, charon, which is translated sometimes indignation or anger, that one can be found in Exodus 15:7, and it says, In the greatness of your excellencies, you overthrew those who rise up against you. Now, the context refers to the Egyptians while Israel was in Egypt. In the last part of verse 7 there, you send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them like chaff. That's charon. So it's translated in that context, burning anger. You could translate it as indignation as well. Now, there's at least two major words in the New Testament that are translated wrath or sometimes anger. One of them is orge. That's the one that we find in Romans 1.18, the passage that we're looking at. That word in reference to God seems to be more of a settled habit of mind, Anger is a settled habit of mind, sometimes translated wrath. And then there's also the more emotional or passionate anger. That word thumas is sometimes more in an emotional sense. Now, that one also is used of God. In fact, all of these are used of God very commonly. In Romans 2.8, we have both these Greek words, orge and thumas. And they're both in reference to God. And the verse goes, But those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, that's orke, and indignation, that's thumas, both of them in reference to God. So those are the, the words that you find in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, and there's a few others as well. But these are the major ones that occur most frequently. So God's wrath. And from that, we want to make sure that we have a good perspective. When God created man, he built within us his image. He put within us his image such that we reflect something of who he is. But sin has distorted that. So what God has built within us, 
is emotions and areas like love and, and wrath even or anger. But when we think of God, we need to separate the fallenness. Initially, he built us in his image, but that was damaged with the fall. And now we have misconceptions. We have a perverted view of some of these things that he's built in us. And we don't reflect that image as accurately as we would have without sin. Today in our culture, and particularly even within the broader church, people handle this doctrine of the wrath of God in a variety of ways. Most of them, obviously, not biblical. We know, first of all, that uh, all liberals essentially deny even the existence of this doctrine and deny this aspect of God. They prefer a God that is only loving and not a God that pours out wrath. So liberals in general deny the wrath of God. But unfortunately, even amongst evangelicals, some have a problem with it, and as a result, try to tone it down, if you will. And therefore, the result is a weakening of this understanding and a weakening of the doctrine of the wrath of God. And this occurs even in some good evangelical churches. There are some that attempt to deal with it by substituting something else in the place of the wrath of God. For example, a doctrine of some is that there is a concept of annihilation. In other words, unbelievers, particularly after death, do not experience an eternal hell, the ultimate outpouring of God's wrath, but instead they go into annihilation or they simply cease to exist. And there are some evangelicals that actually hold to this doctrine of annihilation. So it's another way of getting around the doctrine of God's wrath. And even some conservatives, even within some Bible-teaching churches, some minimize the doctrine, and they minimize it in many ways. One, by overemphasizing the love of God, or others might minimize it by neglecting it and not teaching it at all. And that's probably the more common approach. So it's important that we look at it um, mainly because it is so minimized in the culture that we live in and even closer to home amongst many conservatives. And even amongst the churches that would teach it, many of the people within the church often do not understand the doctrine. So I would say that another distortion is as a result of misunderstanding or not understanding what God has taught in his word. So that's one of the reasons why I feel like it's important that we spend an entire session on just that one concept, not only because it's important, but this is what Paul starts with. So this is the starting point in the argument of Paul in the book of Romans. So when we think of the wrath of God, we need to sort things out in terms of what is true about God in terms of wrath. Certainly he has anger. Scriptures make that clear. On the other hand, we need to sort out some of the sinfulness of the anger that we express. So the first thing to talk about, it is not. God is never in an irrational state. That's our anger. Usually our emotions will cloud everything and we react to those emotions 
without sorting out the facts. That's never true of God. The facts, reality, rationality are always at the focus of God, whether he's expressing wrath or whether he's expressing love, either one. So God's wrath is not an irrational state. He's not out of control. He's not just flying off the handle, you might say. That's our wrath. Sometimes we react suddenly, and sometimes it's so intense that we lose other attributes, like rationality. We do things out of control. That's not God. It's not a bad temper. It's not God just getting so angry that now he has to express it. That's how we do it. Now, we need to learn also God's wrath, because I mentioned that there's a passage that actually commands us to be angry in Ephesians 4. So God not only desires, but it expects us to express anger in the appropriate occasions at the appropriate time. But also the verse goes on with what? <clears throat> but do not sin. And also it says, don't let the sun go down with your anger. In other words, deal with it in a right way and express it in a, in a proper godly way. So God is not irrational in his expression. He doesn't lose control. He doesn't have a bad temper. It's not cruel. And when you study the expressions of God's wrath, and we're going to look at a few of them briefly, and some of it appears like when he judged the Canaanites and he commanded the children of Israel to wipe them out, essentially. It's not cruel. In spite of the bloodshed, in spite of the severity of it, no cruelty. It's perfectly just, perfectly deserved. And when God expresses wrath, it's perfectly deserved in terms of the object. It's not a vindictive rage. God's not getting even with anything. He has no need to get even. God expresses wrath as an expression of his holiness and his judgment. So it's a necessary thing. It's something that God must deal with in terms of sin. So this is what it's not. Betty? I just have to trust you that you had all this see. I mean, we have to trust that. Right. But if I were to have stated... Yes. And I source. Yes, women and children were to be mm-hmm. killed. Yeah. So... That appears cruel. We, we have to trust... We have to trust. Right. Right. But this is almost new. Well, don't trust me. No, I, I because <laughs> you've got more than I have. As yeah. Far, um, but what did it, what, it's you don't get it? Anymore. Okay. What it illustrates, because we have, in our thinking, we have a perverted view of justice as well. So we need to take a biblical view and do trust God that when he expresses <laughs> wrath and expresses and does in fact judge, because he is perfectly righteous, then it is perfectly appropriate. In other words, it's it's not cruel and it's not vindictive. It is appropriate in terms of sin. We tend to minimize sin because of our sin nature and because of who we are. So we put it all together with all of the attributes of God and realize that when he expresses it, it is perfectly righteous, so it cannot be cruel. It cannot be vindictive. It is perfectly righteous, perfectly deserved. That should also stir within us. This is what we deserve. We deserve, because we're Canaanites, we deserve the wrath that was poured out upon them 
should give us an appreciation for the grace that God has given to us. Jesus bore the same wrath, in fact, in greater intensity for the whole world. Not only Canaanites, but Egyptians and Assyrians and Babylonians and Albuquerqueans, right? So God's wrath is his justice expressed against sin. And I've used the illustration several times. You can, you can see that we have an inward yearning for justice. We desire that things be just. And you can see it in your children, no matter how small. A two-year-old. You have twins. They're two years old. You give one twin one candy. You give the other twin two candies. What are you going to have? Sure. Trouble. <laughs> you can have rebellion. Because there's something inside of those children that says this is not right. This is not just. This is, this is wrong. And we yearn for that, even as adults. We want justice. In other words, when we're wronged, we want something to be made right. So we yearn for it, but yet we have that perverted view on it. And when we see it illustrated, then we kind of react to it and think that it's excessive or cruel or whatever. But we desire, in fact, I've said several times as well, all of world history beginning with the fall of mankind, is really God dealing over time at different stages in different ways. He's dealing with evil, and the end of history, he's going to complete that process. We're simply in the middle of God dealing with evil. He will completely deal with it and express complete justice when everything is said and done. And that will not be completed until we go to be with him into the eternal state. History is an expression of God dealing, and every time he enters into judgment, it's an expression not only of wrath, but of his justice. And in the middle of history, he poured out the ultimate wrath on his son, Jesus Christ. And he bore more wrath than any example that you can find in Scripture, including the Genesis flood, etc. So that's what it is. It is necessary reaction to evil. God must deal with evil, otherwise he's an unjust God. And pouring out wrath is an expression of that. It's also right and righteous. That means it's never excessive. It's never evil. It's never sinful. It is always according to God's standard of righteous. Not necessarily our view or our standard. It's according to His righteous standards. So it's never excessive. It's never cruel. It's never beyond what is necessary. So it's necessary, right, and righteous. It's indignation against injustice. And that command... Be angry, but do not sin, tells us that there are situations, and you as parents know that you have to deal with things in a family. And if you don't, then your children are not going to learn right and wrong. They're not going to know that there is justice. They're not going to know that God expects certain things, that there are certain standards. So you must express it, but you must express it without sin, which is a challenge for us because of inclinations. But it's indignation, it's wrath, or it's anger against injustice. It's always judicial. In other words, it's always in terms of a standard. It's always in terms of 
what God has set up as judge of the universe. When he created all things, there is a right, there is a wrong, so it's judicial. It's punitive, and that's part of the justice. Punitive means it's punishment. It's it's part of the way God has set up the universe. It's punitive. That's why the Bible teaches parents to discipline, because that is punitive. That conveys something. Children learn right and wrong. Children learn God's expectation by proper discipline. Really? I would say that there's a discipline, even severe and wrath, because wrath is finally God saying, I've had enough. This is done. Yes. In, in an ultimate form. When his wrath is poured out, because he, he, it's, it's implied that this is, this is him saying, this is final. Enough of this exclamation mark. But discipline is done hoping to turn person from this course back to a course of God. Now, they can look the same, but I see them as two different characters. I don't well, they're, they're, I think they're, re- they're related. You have to understand in Scripture, let me kind of give you a little... Uh, you can observe in Scripture what I call these cycles of sin, and there's different elements to it. God does a work of grace, and you can see this in different periods of time. In fact, this will help you to put all of world history together and what all the Bible together, where God does the work of grace. And you can see that with the original creation. He didn't have to create. Man injects sin, and in the garden we have the initial, but you see this throughout history. God allows that sin so that we can see it and see its destructiveness. He allows it to progress, and it's like a cancer, and it continues and continues to grow, continues to destroy and God is slow to anger, is what the scripture says. In other words, he doesn't deal with it immediately. He allows it to progress to a certain point. And when it reaches a certain fullness, if you will, then he intervenes and he judges. And you may do the same thing as a parent. You don't jump on a kid full bore for the first little thing. You probably observe a pattern here and then you break it. You want to break that pattern. Seems that God is doing something similar. So he intervenes in, in justice to separate. Justice is God separating evil from that that he loves. In other words, evil is destroying that that he loves. And judgment is God separating evil. And you can see that in all of the examples. Perhaps that's why. Yes. And that's crystal clear in the scriptures. He tells them that he does not want them to live like the Canaanites, so that's the reason that they're separated. That's why they're judged. Yes, it is their judge, their time of judgment on earth in that period of time, as is all of the other judgments. You can see the judgment of the flood as well. God's separating out that that is destroying humanity. Man was about to destroy himself, separates out one family. Eight people preserves them. And then this, these cycles continue, okay? So it's punitive. Just a few statements from theologians on the topic. Linda? He lets us what we do. Sometimes, yeah. Like Right. Exactly. And he did it nationally with Israel in the example you use. Yeah. 
And sometimes you might do that with your children. You let them make the wrong decision so that they see the consequences of them. And if they don't get it, then you intervene and kind of show them the consequences. Good. John Murray, I think, describes wrath in a good way. He says, wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. That alone kind of brings out the necessity of God reacting because his holiness is is hindered. His holiness is clouded when uh, sin is allowed to continue. So God must intervene and he must deal with sin. Another statement by C.K. Barrett, wrath is God's personal, though never malicious or in a bad sense emotional. These are some of the things I brought out. Personal reaction against sin. So God deals with sin. And when he pours out wrath, when he judges, when he expresses his holiness in judgment, he is reacting against sin. He's reacting against that that destroys. We don't want him to allow sin to take its course in us personally or in others as well or in the world. Make sense? We want him to deal with evil. We want him to deal with sin. And if he deals with sin, this is the way that it has to be done because this is the way that God has set up the universe, biblical principle. So that's a good quote there. So let's describe it. And you might react to this, but there are scriptures that describe each of these little phrases that I've tried to capture the essence of these passages, and I'll read some of them. In fact, let's look up some of them. I'll have some of you read them. Who wants to look up Jeremiah 23, 19 to 20? Linda, Jenny, 28, uh, Deuteronomy 29, verse 28. Ezekiel, who wants to do Ezekiel? Okay, Ezekiel 20, verses 33 through 34. And these are just a few. And in the context, we have descriptions or phrases along with wrath that give us a picture of this. It's not a pretty picture. Let me warn you ahead of time. Jeremiah 23. Got it, Linda? First of all, I think in that context, is that the one? uh, That's not the one that speaks of great wrath. But in many of these, it just expresses the idea of wrath. Or sometimes it's translated anger. Like it's for who has stood in the hearer's word. Who has paid attention? Look, a storm from the Lord. Because he's Look, a storm from the Lord. Wrath has gone out, a whirling storm. The Lord's will not turn back until in time to come. Okay. That's good. We may not understand it right now, Betty. In, in time, we will. All right. But notice, even like a whirling tempest... It's like a storm. That's from our perspective. It's dreadful. Something that we don't like. It's Notice like, all, Go ahead. It's just like a sin, the right stuff. That's why he's doing it. Yeah. It's, it's necessary. Yes. Right. And notice it has purpose behind it. He's going to do it until, what does it say there? He has performed and carried out the purposes of his heart. It's part of the broad picture, the broad plan of God to bring justice, to bring, ultimately, the eternal state where there is no sin, where there is no injustice, where there are no problems, where sin is basically confined to the lake of fire. 
Okay? Well, the thing to notice, it's great wrath, and there's other passages that speak of that. I think, let's see, Deuteronomy 29:28, great wrath. And the Lord cast them into a state. Okay, this looks ahead in terms of the nation of Israel, but notice three different Hebrew words for wrath. First of all, anger, number one. Fury, number two. And in great wrath, number three, cast them into another land. This is expulsion from the land. This is after years and years of idolatry. Deuteronomy is predicting way into the future in that passage. It's also described as wrath that is poured out. It's poured out wrath. That's Ezekiel 20. Who's got that one? Ezekiel 20. 20, 33 through 34. Okay, with wrath poured out in a mighty hand. So it's going to be, it's going to display omnipotence as well. Keep going. I'm going to bring up with the wrath poured out. Okay, he's going to bring them, the, the children of Israel, back to Israel, but it's going to be in the midst of having to deal with their enemies. It's going to deal with the outpouring of wrath. And the Israelites want to be restored, but this is the only way that it can happen. He's got to deal with the enemies, otherwise they will never return. So it's wrath poured out, it's burning anger. If you want a verse for that one, Psalm 78, 49, he sent upon them his burning anger. Also in that context, fury and indignation, and if that's not enough, and trouble. So it's severe. We don't like it, but it's necessary. Then it goes, a band of destroying angels. Vivid description of his wrath. It's also kindled. It's anger that's kindled. Quick question. We're talking more, the examples are society-based. You said it also applies individually. Yes, yes. Individuals, I mean, collectively, society's made up of individuals that experience it personally, yeah. Every unbeliever is going to have to experience the wrath of God for rejecting the provision that God has made, for not accepting the escape, because all are sinners. So it's anger that's kindled, and you can just write down Numbers 11.33. It's wrath like a fire. That's Jeremiah 4.4. It says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. Men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. It corresponds to the sinfulness of their actions. It's appropriate. It's also described as indignation in some passages, like Jeremiah 21.5, so if you want another passage for that. It's also called fierce anger, Isaiah 30.30. And the Lord will cause his voice of authority to be heard and the descending of his arm to be seen in fierce anger. Now Isaiah is looking forward to, or not forward, but he's looking ahead to a judgment that Israel experienced if they don't come away from idolatry. Betty. 
Just a quick clarification from Paris. Mm-hmm. Said not in a bad. That's pretty emotional. That's per, well, yeah, but but what could be a bad sense of emotion? emotion. <clears throat> it's not, but it's not vindictive. In other words, it is perfectly righteous. In other words, we have to balance that with the statements in terms of God's righteousness. We associate these things with our emotions, and we need to separate out those things that it is not. The, the list that I gave you. And if we can sort those out and view that God, because he's holy and perfect and sinless and all of the other attributes, then when we look at these, it is severe, but it's not irrational or it's not unrighteous. It's not called for. In other words, it is totally deserved. And that's the perspective that we lose. Uh, Mary Lee, Bill, and then Linda. It's sometimes, certainly for myself, when I when I come and I am really, if I assess it properly, I can see where I have failed in some way, deal properly with an escalation. So I can say, yeah, I, I had a hand. In, I contributed this situation, so I I cannot be. My anger is misplaced because I contribute. But I think that. When we look at the Lord, he has done everything, the death of his son, so that none should turn from, but we should all obedience, submit. Our, and so when you see that, he has done impossible right. to reach between, but have not. And so then, you might say, I mean, you would say he's only justified. Even nations are punitive. And he right. says that in one of the things talking about whoever was destroying Israel. They, I sent them for this job, but they they went Habakkuk. beyond what I told them. Habakkuk. Yeah. yeah. Right. Built One of the things that strikes me from this is an issue of perspective. If we place ourselves at the same then we place ourselves in it and are judging whether God's trap is right or Judging God. Yeah. Exactly. Right. But if we shift our perspective, okay, God created the universe. He owns you. He is bringing all events together for his purpose. Then his wrath's absolute. Right. Linda. Yes, very good. And so when um, in Ezekiel 20, uh, yourselves for all the evil things you have done, um, you will know that I am my name mm-hmm. rather than a part of Yeah. Yeah, he's demonstrating. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And we should learn from these judgments not only what God is like, but also what we are like. In other words, and we're the ones that deserve everything that is poured out. Just a few other scriptures real quickly. And these are all very vivid, if you will. Nahum 1, 2 through 6. I've just quoted a portion of it there. A jealous, and again, don't mix this up with our sinful jealousy. You could even translate it a zeal, a jealous and avenging. In other words, he it's not the idea of vindictiveness, but it's the idea of correcting. In other words, that that is unjust, God must avenge it and make it right. Make sense? So he's a jealous and avenging God, or God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. Again, vengeance, correcting that that is wrong, correcting injustice on his adversaries. And he reserves wrath for his enemies. In verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Notice all the phrases here. 
who can endure the burning of his anger. His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. Lots of phrases in there. Severity. Think of severity. Isaiah 13.9. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Cruel. Or you can substitute there severe. With fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. That's the goal. First Thessalonians, one a New Testament passage, one ten, and to wait for his son from heaven. We wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. There's even a future wrath. And then Second Thessalonians one five through eight. And, and by the way, in that context, he's dealing with the persecutors of the believers. And he's assuring them that God is going to bring justice. In other words, you may experience martyrdom as a Christian. You may suffer persecution. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. These are Christians that are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. He's going to bring justice. He's going to make things right. Verse 8, dealing out retribution. That's the punitive aspect. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel. In other words, these are the persecutors that are bringing injustice. In your experience, we can be assured God's going to deal with that. He's going to bring justice. So we don't have to retaliate. We don't have to take vindictive action. We can let God deal with it. In fact, there are verse in the Sermon on the Mount to that. Well, God has displayed his wrath, if you will, and his justice. And there's lots of examples. He's done it in the past. These are just a few of the examples, the more striking ones. And you can see in every one of these that cycle of sin that I mentioned. And this is the end. This is when God intervenes in justice or judgment. And by the way, the little phrase, the day of the Lord, is God intervening in history. Most of the passages referring to the day of the Lord look to the future. The day of the Lord predominantly is when God is going to deal in a final way with evil, and he must deal with it in justice and judgment. So, the Genesis flood is a vivid example. God separating out one family from that that is destroying that family that he loves, the family of Noah, eight people. But he must deal with the rest of the world and destroy it. We want evil to be destroyed. That's a vivid example because it's destroying that that God loves. Justice is God separating evil out from that that he loves. The Genesis flood, Sodom and Gomorrah. There's lots of passages, by the way. Uh, let me just give you a couple of them. Deuteronomy 29, 23 through 24, Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, all its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive, and no grass grows in it like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. Adma and Zeboim, the two other cities nearby, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. Two words, two Hebrew words there for anger or wrath. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? 
Why is this outburst of anger? Well, the answer is he's a holy and a just God that deals with evil. And here's a vivid example, Sodom and Gomorrah. The plagues of Egypt. This was Egypt's time of judgment, or at least one of them. A time of judgment for the Egyptians, and in the process, God separates out what? The Jewish people or the nation of Israel. He's separating them out under their domination by the Egyptian Empire. The wilderness, Israel sins. God does a a work of grace by delivering them. And when they go out in the wilderness, what did they do? They left Egypt physically, but they took Egypt spiritually with them. The sin. And one of the first things, while God is up on Mount Sinai, what happens? They worship what was very common in Egypt, a golden calf. So they took, obviously, the sin with them, and God allows a time frame to go by, but in the wilderness, he proclaims that those 20 years and older will die in the wilderness and not enter the land. That is a form of judgment, you might say. It's discipline. So the wilderness experience, the Assyrian captivity, after the northern tribes fell, and this is after hundreds of years, God patiently waiting, and over hundreds of years, in 722, he brings the Assyrians, and in this case, he uses the Assyrians as his instrument of judgment upon the northern ten tribes. And they go into captivity, some of them scattered. And similarly, the Babylonian captivity. And like I said, there's lots of scriptures that speak of these. In the wilderness, you can jot down Deuteronomy 9, 7 through 8. And in every one of those, well, let me read that one because there's so many words in there. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath, children of Israel, in the wilderness, from the day you left Egypt until you arrived at this place. It was continuous. You have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was angry with you that he would have destroyed you. Severity of sin. You have the example in the wilderness of the golden calf that I mentioned. Numbers 11.1. You can include that one. They're grumbling. Remember all the grumbling in the wilderness? God dealt with them as well. The spies, the that brought the false report or the bad report. There's a passage, Numbers 32, 10 and 13. You have a response there. If you want Assyrian captivity, 2 Kings 17, 17. Then they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire and practiced divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him. The occasion is the Assyrian captivity And you also have a Babylonian captivity. And you can use Jeremiah 52.3. For through the anger of the Lord this came about. Referring to the captivity. In Jerusalem and Judah until he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And it goes on. But he used the Babylonians to discipline his, his own people. Separate them from idolatry. And again, he's waiting hundreds of years in that time frame. Linda? Well, I always see him. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good <laughs> assumption. <laughs> but when I look, started to look and, you know, 
But when it's, yeah, now when it starts to actually remove, I mean, but I had to go through that. But that's why you have to do it. Yeah. Because it's yeah. so. Yeah. yeah, look at you now. In a general sense, Terry, because we're all part of a fallen world, are we all under the wrath of right now? We're going to get to that <laughs> shortly, very shortly. What is the greatest outpouring and expression of God's wrath? Greater than the Genesis flood, greater than Sodom and Gomorrah, greater than that localized judgment in Egypt. Well, that in itself, everyone's got experienced death. So, okay, any other suggestions? Judgment in the garden. Okay, that was a judgment in the garden. God the Father and God the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. Wow, wow, good description. Everybody get that? The greatest outpouring of wrath was not the Assyrian captivity, was not the Babylonian captivity, was not the flood, but it was crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He bore the penalty of all sin, of all of humanity, from Adam and Eve until the end of time. Good answer. The cross, the crucifixion. This should give you an appreciation. Jesus took what we deserve... By grace, we simply believe that that was what he did, and now I can be set free when I put my trust in him. Simple gospel message. That was an expression of the wrath of God. That's why Jesus on the cross cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because at that moment, he was bearing eternal punishment for you and I. You can't even conceive of that. So that's past wrath. The cross is past wrath. He's also will display his wrath in the future. And scriptures are full of passages that deal with that, future wrath. The great tribulation, remember when we were studying the Olivet Discourse, lots of wrath on the earth. God about to intervene, well, intervening in wrath, but about to come to set up a new world, what we call a kingdom, millennial kingdom. But it, the world must be cleansed first. That cleansing is his judgment. And there's a series of judgments within that tribulation. There are seal judgments. Very severe. One of them, a, what is it, a third or a quarter of all of the earth is destroyed. A quarter of humanity. That would be over a billion people today if it would happen in our generation. Then there's trumpet judgments. Very, very severe. Some of them are astrophysical. Some of them are geophysical. Some of them pertain to the evil of men. Judgment upon judgment, seven of them. And the third set, bold judgments. Bold judgments. Chapter 16, the book of Revelation. In that, another judgment where a quarter of all of humanity is destroyed. Another few billion people, if it were to happen now. If you put the two together, and these are separate judgments, you put the two together, half of all of humanity is destroyed, is killed, just as much as the Egyptians were killed or the Canaanites were killed, they are killed in the Great Tribulation. Future judgments. Babylon the Great, the world system is going to be destroyed. It's a picture of the world system. God must cleanse the earth of the world system. Satan and demons... They will experience a judgment in the future. 
And then the final is the great white throne. That's the last event of world history where God in a total and in a complete and in a final way separates evil from that that he will bring into the eternal state. And never will there be evil again. Sin and death will be cast into the lake of fire, totally separated. That's world history. All right? In the book of Romans, it is very interesting, but there's also a present tense sense. This is what Paul is going to develop for us when he says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, present tense. There's a present tense sense in which you can observe the culture in which we live in, and as you make accurate observations, you will see that God is pouring out wrath today on our culture. Yeah, that's that one. Yep. Yeah. Wrath is Yeah, one way we experience it is his discipline upon us. Just as he disciplined the nation of Israel, so also we can experience discipline as well. So that present tense, that's the Romans passage. One of the ways he does that, here's a clear passage, Romans 13, 4 through 5, for it is a minister of God. He's talking about government here. It is a minister of God to you for good. This is one way that is expressed in the culture in a present tense sense. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. He's talking about in a culture, if you want to rob banks, if you want to rob houses, if you want to kill people, if you want to kidnap, if you want to do all these things, the law and government, it is good for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. That's government. And by the way, the sword was capital punishment. For it is a minister of God, government. God using it. An avenger who brings wrath. There's the word, orge. Wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscious sake. When the government deals with evil in a proper way by punishing and separating out. It is a minister of God. And this is one of the ways that God expresses his wrath in a present tense sense. Now, we're going to develop this further when we look at Romans 1, because Romans 1 basically lays out God expressing wrath today, beginning in verse 24 through the end of the chapter. God giving up a culture to allow the culture to basically degenerate, and that is going to bring punishment on those that live in that culture. Just a few closing implications. This gives us a sense of God's attitude towards sin. God's attitude towards sin. If it seems severe, that's what God thinks is sin. It's severe. We should also have an appreciation for the grace We are deserving of wrath. We've been given grace. When we trusted in Jesus Christ, we escape the wrath. It should also give us an urgency to share the gospel with the unbeliever as well and share the grace with them that they might escape as well. And it should give us a fear of God, a proper sense of respect, reverence for a holy God. The wrath of God and the justice of God should instill in us a proper fear. Not a trembling fear, but a fear 
of confidence and a fear that God is going to deal with things in the right way and it's going to be drastic. has to be drastic. The illustration you can use, if you have cancer, you can't just kind of play around with it, right? Some cancers, you have to take radical steps. You have to open up the body, cut out entire organs sometimes, and remove them. And there's lots of blood. There's pain. But it's necessary if you want to survive that cancer. So also, similarly, God's wrath. It's severe, but it's necessary in order to preserve. Closing thought. Sin is serious. No matter how small, we have a tendency of minimizing it. See sin as it's cancer to absolutely destroy. It'll grow and it'll destroy. Exactly. So we don't see it. We just see it as something. Yeah. Why don't you close for us? All right. Well, Father, we praise you. Thank you for for opening our eyes to see regard sin. Does it regard sin very with much regard? I pray that as we try put our minds around this thing, not only how this is a way you deal with sin, but you will have loved us. All those throughout our lives that you to us, inviting us, inviting us, place ourselves in your sovereignty and be obedient servants of yours to share you with others, others that we, your wrath. This is a hard saying. This is how to see it correct, to respond Correct. Amen. Next week, we'll see if we can get a couple more words out of Romans 118.